special edition of PFTPM. We continue our series with general managers, and I'm delighted to be joined today by the outgoing general manager of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He is Kevin Colbert. Kevin, welcome back. Thank you for doing it. Congratulations on the tremendous career. Really, we appreciate you taking some time to talk to us on your literally way out the door. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, talk about our draft class. Before we get to your draft class, I was blown away when I was doing some research over the weekend, and every once in a while, I actually engage in some research. The fact that Kevin Colbert was the head baseball coach at Robert Morris in 1981 and Ohio Wesleyan in 1984, how did that come to be? You know what? I mean, I was an average college baseball player after being an even more average high school football and baseball player. And you know, I was at Robert Morris. I was a graduate assistant basketball coach that had played baseball. The, uh, the baseball coach uh, took another position, and I, I just happened to be there and filled in uh, for that season. When I went to Ohio Wesleyan, I was a running back coach for the football team and an assistant baseball coach. And then the head baseball coach, who was actually my brother, he took another job at Cornell University, and that opened that up uh, in that season as the head baseball coach. And then, you know, I got into, got into the football world full-time with a scouting position with Blesto. What made that decision happen for you? Because you did have the foot in basketball. And at Robert Morris in the early 80s, that was the time frame when every once in a while they'd pop into the NCAA tournament, I believe. And you've got the baseball experience. What was it that drew you to football? You know, you're correct on the Robert Morris. I mean, we had recruited some guys and helped them get into their first NCAA tournament. And then, you know, baseball was actually the sport I was best at. But football was something that we kind of grew up with in, in the Pittsburgh area. I had a lot of family members uh, that were in the, in the profession. And I just felt that uh, my long-term best goals would be, our best uh, career path would be in football rather than the other two sports. And, you know, I chose, I, I was fortunate enough that my high school football coach, Ron Hughes, helped me get into Blesto and, of course, Jack Butler and then with the Dolphins and then the Lions and then, of course, back ending up with the Steelers. So it worked out, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't an easy choice all the time. We just felt it was the best career path for us. You mentioned recruiting for Robert Morris. And if I recall correctly from the article that Jerry Dulac wrote recently, that's how Kevin Colbert found Mrs. Colbert. It's true. It's a crazy um, story. But, you know, in the recruiting world, you spend a lot of time interacting with families. And uh, Forrest Grant, who was one of the point guard, who was the point guard on that on that first NCAA team. I spent a lot of time recruiting him, got to know his family very well. And his sister, Tina, was uh, worked with my wife at a grocery store. And she introduced me to my wife and my wife, Janice. And from there, you know, we're happily been married for 40 years that's awesome it's just great and you never know you never know which way the dominoes are going to fall and where you're going to be led and how things are going to happen but that's a great part of your overall journey now when you came back to pittsburgh after a decade with the lions did you have any idea that this was it 22 years later you'd be retiring as a member of the steelers organization absolutely not uh, i was very fortunate to be considered for this position, you know, originally it was called director of football operations and we switched the title 
uh, I forget how many years back, the job hasn't changed over that time period, just the title. Uh, but never did I think um, I'd be looking back 22 years later. And, you know, I, I don't know how it happened. I'm, I'm happy that it did. And there's a lot of things you can reflect upon, but certainly not. I'm not expecting 22 years in that first year. I was just trying to help help the organization, help Coach Cower um, get on the winning track, which we were able to do. How do you celebrate your final draft? Once the dust settles, what did you do to, to just basically take a victory lap for yourself? Really nothing. I mean, it might sound boring, but, you know, sat around and talked about the, the draft picks with the scouts. Um, just talked about a few clerical things that we had to handle, what was coming up uh, for them in the future, for myself. And I just went home and just had a nice night at home with my wife. And again, no celebrations yet. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll celebrate a class or a career once this class, you know, matures and we see what we did. There's no reason to celebrate. We're happy with who we got, but until they help the team win, there's no reasons to celebrate. Now, you've scouted and drafted quarterbacks since Ben Roethlisberger was the 11th overall pick in 2004. I assume that this year was a much more in-depth and thorough scouting of quarterbacks than you had been involved in since drafting Roethlisberger. No doubt. I mean, every year, I mean, we scout every position at every you know, level um, just so we do a thorough evaluation and stack the players accordingly. Uh, this year, we knew it would be Ben's last season from his indications to us. So we went about it differently. Uh, we mapped out more live scouting for that position. You have to see them play live. And uh, the scouts, myself included, collectively, on average, we saw each of those quarterbacks play live in a game at least three times uh, between us. And, of course, the film the workouts, the pro days, the senior bowl. Uh, we treated everybody the same throughout the whole process, but we were more in detail with it because we anticipating wanting to take one. There was plenty of confusion and differing opinions about which way the Steelers would be leaning if a quarterback or all of them, as the case may be, were available at number 20. Kenny Pickett, Malik Willis, others. What was it that ultimately drew you to Kenny Pickett? You know, ultimately, I mean, and I've said this, this was a this was a better class. And I think people um, maybe anticipate in the way it played out. Some of those guys got drafted a little later than we expected for sure. But I, I think it was a really good class. And, and again, we went through the process and put each one of these guys through the same exact steps. Again, not trying to take Kenny for granted because he's a next door neighbor and maybe we know him better. But we did the same thing with him. But you just came away with a comfort level very early on that he's the most prepared uh, coming out. And, you know, he's coming from a pro system and we've watched him grow from a, you know, a sophomore into a that senior year where he helped them help Pitt win, a, win the Atlantic Coast Conference. Uh, so you saw that up close and personal. And in doing that, we never anticipated that he would have been available to us but obviously when we pick Kenny we valued him above the others and again that's not to take anything away from those young men because we really came away impressed with that group not only physically but their their maturity level their families um, the interaction we had with that group was pretty special 
the hand size narrative for Kenny Pickett has been a thing, and rightfully so. It's an objective measurement, and his hands are smaller than other quarterbacks' hands. What would you say to put the minds at ease of fans who are thinking, oh, when it gets cold and windy and wet, he's going to be fumbling the football over and over again at Heinz Field? Yeah, you know, honestly, I never paid attention to that. I, I, I talked about, um, I forget which game, I believe it was the Clemson game. You know, other, other personnel people were attending, and some asked me about it, and I was like, Oh, okay. Maybe that, maybe that's something, but I never paid attention to it. And, you know, we'd look at the results. Um, we watch Kenny play in our environment. Um, you know, albeit Pitt, Pitt didn't play games as late into a year as, as he'll have to do here, but it is, it is Pittsburgh. It's hot and humid in the summer and it's cold and rainy and snowy or whatever in the winter that we're confident uh, that Kenny can do that. And I think the proof is just in the pudding. Can he throw the football? Absolutely. Did he have an excessive fumble rate? No, he didn't. Uh, so there's things that, again, we just judge it on how he played. And we, we get all the information and we'll, we'll factor it in and in the discussion point. But ultimately, it comes down to how the young man plays. On your watch, the Steelers have had three occasions where there's been a significant trade up in round one. Troy Polamalos, Antonio Holmes, and Mo more recently, Devin Bush, how close did you come to making a move up instead of waiting for it to fall that you got the guy you wanted at 20? Yeah, again, we didn't think Kenny would make it to 20 under any circumstance. So once he started to get close, we were like, wait a minute, this, this is happening. Uh, let's talk and you know make some calls, which we did. And we always will do that if anticipating a player that we'd like, maybe not making it to us. We did it last year with Najee, um, but we never struck any deals with anybody. And it was just a matter of, okay, maybe we'll do this, but you, you know, it'll cost you this. And then you always weigh, okay, what, what are we giving up by doing this? Or does it make sense to wait it out? In the last two years, we were able to wait it out and get the players we wanted. What's that feeling as you're waiting for the picks to pop in? As you get closer and closer to 20, you got one more to go, two more to go, however many more to go. How are you feeling as it's happening? You know, you, you, um, you learn just to accept it for what it is and, and how it's going to unfold. Um, you learn that there's not a lot you can't, can do except make some calls and maybe have some decisions to make. And then you just wait. And um, we had mapped it out again we had 20 guys that we were comfortable in taking. So we know we're going to get one of those 20. But again, Kenny wasn't one that we thought would make it. When he did, it was great. When you heard a name other than Kenny Pickett at 19, what was your reaction? Put it in. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and there wait, wasn't did, any hesitation. Didn't you get the memo? The league wants you to wait. You're not uh, supposed to put it in right away. I hate that. And I, I understand it's a big show and the whole bit. And I, I don't like it, but that doesn't matter if I like it or not. Um, but there's absolutely no hesitation. And of course, we were ecstatic at that point And it, it worked out for us. One of the great things the Steelers have developed in recent years, and we've talked about this in the past as it relates to receivers, the ability to find receivers in every round, mid rounds, late rounds, any round of the draft. And Chris Sims and I were kicking this around earlier in the week. And since I have the ability to ask you, I'm going to ask you how much of what the Steelers look for in a receiver is just institutional secret formula. This is what we do. We don't tell anybody else what it is, but this is what we look for. And we know 
we look for this, we find this, guy has this attribute, he's more likely to be good, this is what we want. How much of that is a formula that you guys have developed versus just case by case, person by person, scouting each receiver? I wish we could say there was a secret sauce involved, but there really isn't. I mean, we again, we scout every position as, as best we can. We have criteria as we look for in a given in a given position, but I can't say it's a secret sauce. And not to take anything away from the great receivers we've had here in Pittsburgh, but part of their greatness was they, they had the ability to play with a Hall of Fame quarterback. And I don't want to minimize their contributions to maybe – the Hall of Fame quarterback's career as well, but there's really no secret sauce. Uh, we look for young, talented guys that, you know, they can they can get open, uh, they can catch a ball and maybe do something after a catch. But, you know, in, in, in the draft in the two we did, we drafted two complete opposites. One's a 6'3", one's just 5'8". Um, and but they're both fast, and we think they're both going to be good receivers. But until they get out there and prove it, um, we'll see. I mean, we've drafted, you know, we've drafted some receivers that haven't worked out too. So it's not like every time we've taken a receiver, it's worked to our advantage, but we're confident and hopeful that these two can. How much of drafting two receivers this year, Kevin, is a product of the reality that the receiver market for veterans is going haywire. And you've got a couple of guys who are moving toward contract number two and Deontay Johnson and Chase Claypool and some tough decisions may need to be made. Yeah, no doubt. And, but I mean, it was more reflective on the reality that we lost some receivers in free agency and it was just us trying to manage our cap as best we could and make decisions based on what we knew we had to work with. And sometimes in making those decisions, you understand that um, you understand what the replacement crop might look like. And again, as we were making those decisions in free agency, we were pretty confident that this would again be another strong receiver group, which we thought it was. And again, hopefully, both George and Calvin can replace the guys we lost. The drafting of Connor Hayward gives you four sets of brothers on the roster. Is that coincidence or is there something to what you're looking for and you know the brother and you kind of like having that connection there in the locker room? How does that come to be? Because it's one thing to have one or two. You guys have four of them now. Yeah, I think that's pretty unique. When we had three, it was kind of unique. And coach stated it best. It's not that we go into it looking for a brother. Um, and I don't want to take anything away from Connor just because he was Cam's brother. But when you have the comfort of knowing um, somebody that's come from that, that family or, or that talent pool, uh, it, it is, it's a little easier to judge who they might be as they join your team. So as you mentioned, we got four sets. We probably know them a little better than maybe someone from outside of that group. But it, we don't go into it saying we have to take this guy because of that you know, relationship to another player. Before I let you go, you told us at the Scouting Combine that you were open to remaining with the team in a different role. Jerry Dulac's article mentions that it's likely that you'll stay in a reduced capacity. Any final decisions on whether or not you will still be part of the Steelers organization? No, we've left it open-ended throughout the whole process. And that's, you know, Art Rooney, Coach Tomlin, myself, uh, whoever Art decides to hire, uh, we'll, we'll make those decisions at that point. And again, as I've said, if I can help and not hinder, then maybe. Uh, nobody wants to lock into anything other than, you know, maybe 
um, helping whoever Art decides that he will hire and, you know, hoping to continue and try to find some more success for the steel organization. As you said the other day, you helped add to that room, that trophy room. And I know the goal is to add more to the six that are in there. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished with the Steelers. And here's hoping that you do stick around and continue to be part of the organization for their sake. I think they would benefit from having Kevin Colbert still part of the team. Thanks as always for some of your time. And we look forward to talking to you again. All right, Mike, you take care. Joining us now, the guy who has been getting it done for the Indianapolis Colts. He's Chris Ballard. Chris, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. I was going to say how many years you've been doing it. The years go by so fast. Is it five already? Five. This was, this was my fifth draft. My God. I know. I know. Five drafts, five quarterbacks. Isn't it I'm amazing busy. the years go by, but we don't get any older? <laughs> I judge them by quarterbacks. Every time I, every year I get a new one. <laughs> and I want to start there. I want to start there. God, I still remember exactly where I was when, and actually my wife and I, we're at a Broadway show. It was our 25th anniversary weekend. Phones must be off, and that is so hard for me to do. I turn the phone back on, and it blows up because Andrew Luck had retired. And I thought our Twitter page got hacked. I didn't know what the hell was going on. But, yeah, that was 2019, and that really put you guys in a tailspin that I feel like you're still trying to recover from. Yeah. Well, the one thing I'll give Frank and the staff and the players, you know, even with all the – flux we've had at quarterback we've found a way to stay competitive now we haven't reached the ultimate goal but you know making the playoffs in 19 I mean in 20 you know 19 we fought you know we just that was my fault I didn't have enough good players on the roster you know after the five and two start and then in 20 making the playoffs with Phillip and then this last year you know having a chance at the end and we just we just faltered and failed at the end um, to keep ourselves competitive, even though I give our coaches and our staff a lot of credit um, and our players. You know, Ryan Tannehill, the quarterback of the Titans, spoke earlier this week about how hard it was for him to get past the playoff loss to the Bengals. And I suspect that there are a lot of people in your organization that struggled to get past what happened week 18. I didn't intend to dredge it up, but you kind of no, got to okay. I mean, I mean th 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 that was a no-brainer. I, I don't bet. If I bet, I would have bet everything I own that you guys are going to win that game against a team that was just waiting to get the season over with and get the hell out of Jacksonville. How hard has it been to get the organization past that? And have you found a way to kind of turn it into a positive for a new beginning in 22? I think it, I think, I mean, it stung. I'm not going to lie to you. I went into a dark place too now. I think, you know, really, I'll tell you what losing does, and especially the way it happened in, it really makes you take a hard look at everything you're doing um, and probably make some harder decisions that you might not have made. And so really evaluating everything we're doing um, from top to bottom. I mean, it's a prideful group. It's a prideful organization. Uh, an owner that really wants to win um, and, you know, an organization that wants to win. And we think we have a good football team. It needed some change and needed some tweaks. And I th we think we were able to do good work this offseason to um, get us moving back in the right direction. And I, I didn't intend to get into this at all. We just kind of have gone there organically. I, I think about the alternate universe where you guys win that game and make it to the playoffs, how different the team would be right now. Carson Wentz is still on your team right now if you guys win that game, right? I don't know. I, I think we would have still had some some – I think we still would have had some hard discussions. 
um, you know, just the way we played down the stretch. Um, and we knew we needed to make some, some improvements in that area. And look, the one thing I think Jim and I and Frank, we're all pretty good at is like when, when we know something's not a good fit, you know, don't, don't just try to justify it. Um, let's move forward. We all know we're going to get egg on our face. That is what it is. I mean, but at the end of the day, it's about doing the right thing for the organization. So I think even if we would have ended up in the playoffs, we would have had some hard discussions uh, going forward. And I like how you put that because one of the things I've learned over the last 20 years, there's two kinds of organizations. There's the team that makes a mistake, but doubles down thinking that it's going to get better. Then there's the team that is very self-aware and realizes it's not going to get better. Let's go ahead and acknowledge we need to go in a different direction for whatever reason, no hard feelings. It's a business. We got to move forward. But I feel like if you try to chase your losses by sticking with something, that's not working. It's only going to get worse. No, you just, you just multiply the problem and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do you any good. And you know, the one thing that like, if we can't have some hard internal discussions about who we are and, and where we're going and, you know, the mistakes we've made, then, then, you know, we, we got real issues. So that's the one thing I'm really proud of here is we are able to have those discussions. Um, they're not always easy. They're not always fun. Uh, matter of fact, it's like going to the freaking dentist sometimes when you're having to have them, but it, they, they need to be had. The only way you can get better is if you're able to successfully uh, evaluate your own team internally. I don't, we don't let the outside world do it. We need to be able to do it internally and you got to be able to have those honest, Hard discussions. I keep looking at your hat. What's it, What's on that? What is that? So this is a Patagonian hat. Stand for the waters you stand in. It's just one that supports. Um, I don't know where I found it. It's a fly, uh, right? Yeah, it's it, it support the rivers, support the waters we are. Take care of take care of the take care of the of the rivers and the and the and the joys we have in this country. I got a couple of lakes down the hill for me. I'm going to interpret your sign on that hat as an indication that I need to go ahead and get my fishing license, dust <laughs> off my gear and get away from the computer on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, nice and early, right when they're biting and go out and try to catch a few fish and then find somebody to take the fish off the hook for me. You, you and me both, you and me both. I'm the, like, I like to fish, but I only like to fish when they're biting. I don't, <laughs> I lose fish I don't very like quickly. <laughs> if I'm not catching fish, I'm done. I'm out of there. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, you. You caught a big fish in Matt Ryan. And that's another one that I just can't get over when you were trying to figure out where do we go from here? All of a sudden, Matt Ryan falls out of the sky. How did that happen? Well, I mean, a little bit of luck. We're very patient. I, I, I remember telling, you know, Mr. Say and Frank in our group that, you know, what, what are we in a hurry for? You know, let's, let's be patient. Um, we, we knew the Deshaun Watson thing was going to domino some in some fashion. So why be in a hurry when we can be patient? Let's see if this thing ends up rolling our way. And so, you know, we got the call on Matt when we knew it, when Atlanta was um, in the Deshaun Watson talks. And, you know, I think Matt had, identified us as a team that he would, he would like to come to. Um, and then when they didn't get Deshaun, we were able to still continue to have discussions and work out a deal to get him here, which I give Atlanta a lot of credit for, you know, they didn't have to, um, but I think they knew Matt. I think it was good. I think the timing ended up being good for both parties. Um, it was time for them to move on and, and move forward with their program as, 
a chance to give Matt a chance to get a fresh start somewhere and finish out his career, you know, on a high note. And Chris, I feel like the game's changing in that there are more teams that are willing to, however you get to that point. And it kind of came up pretty quickly between the Falcons and Matt Ryan. But once he decided he wanted a fresh start, you see more teams willing to do that with players, not just at the quarterback position. We saw a bunch of receivers get traded this off season who just wanted to go somewhere else. Why do you think teams are moving toward accommodating players who, for whatever reason, no hard feelings, aren't happy and want to move on? What is Mike Tomlin says it best. I always say you want, you want volunteers, you know, you want people that want to be here. Um, and so when you, when you get a player that doesn't want to be in your organization anymore, what do we, you know, you can, you can play hardball, which sometimes we all do. Um, but you want volunteers. You want people to want to be here. Like the, the one good thing, Mike, about the NFL and, and, and just football in general, like team still wins. I mean, team, team still wins. I mean, look, every player is important, but them coming together and playing for each other, um, that, that still wins. And it's the great thing about our game. And I, and I think it's what gives it such great parity in our league. Um, the teams that figure it out, come together, you know, they usually, they usually are the teams that end up winning. You make a great point too, about the Mike Tomlin quote, because you can say to a guy, Hey, you know, we have this piece of paper you signed and you're under contract with us for X number of years. But if you have a guy who's showing up every day and he didn't want to be there, it's going to come out. It's going to potentially influence others. It's going to create a bad situation. It's going to be harder to come together as a team. If there's a guy that doesn't want to be there, maybe other guys start, you know what? He's got a good point. I don't want to be here either. And the next thing you know, you got a cancer that's spreading through your organization. Yeah. Keeping, you know, getting, doing, having the right guys. It's hard enough. It's hard to freaking win. Like it's hard to win one game. Like people, sometimes I think people forget that. Like just winning one game on Sunday is hard. And then to, to win enough to get into the playoffs and make a real push is very difficult. So everybody's got to be, you know, paddling in the same direction um, and working together to get that done. And it didn't take much to get the, to get the boat off course uh, if you don't have that happening in your building. I'm anxious you to get off of this veteran quarterback, veteran quarterback, veteran quarterback roller coaster and get not, nothing against Matt Ryan. He's just getting started. Hasn't played a game yet. But do you want to get to a point where you've got a guy that you think is going to be there for 10, 15 years? Oh, absolutely. I do. Um, I keep, I keep thinking, man, what five different quarterbacks, five different years, um, you know, to find the, to find the long-term answer is going to be great. But look, where the one thing I do know is not everybody, everybody, not everybody has one. Everybody's looking for, you know, three quarters of the league are looking for the same thing we're looking for. And then those guys don't come along very often. I mean, I think I said this to the media a couple of years ago. Where I said, you can take one in round one just to appease the masses, but you better take the right one because if you don't, it's going to put your program behind. So it, there's, to me, it's always a difference. Like, all right, it's easy to take, take one. All right, it's great. You know, but then they got to play. And then if they don't play well and they don't have quite the talent level to, uh, to stand up to that one being next to their name at quarterback, um, then, then you've set your program back. You've set it back a few years. And that's the hard – like, I think that's the pressures that come. When you put a first-round pick next to a quarterback's name, man, they are deemed as the savior of the franchise. And you got to be right. 
when you make that decision to do it. And I mean, and look at, you know, that the criticism in our job comes along with it when you don't take one, when you need one. Um, but it's got to be the right one. With Matt Ryan just getting started, there was only one quarterback taken, obviously, in round one this year. There were plenty of others. You had opportunities to take them. You didn't. Are you trying to engineer the right handoff so it's not awkward, so it's seamless, so Matt gets his chance, and then at the right time, we add a young guy that maybe learns from Matt, and then that guy can take over, and it's not bumpy. There isn't hard feelings. It isn't like in, in Tennessee where I'm not sure Ryan Tannehill's ready to walk off into the sunset, and they've got Malik Willis. Do you want to just get it just right? So Matt Ryan knows, hey, I'm basically at the end, and I know this guy's going to sit for a year or two, but I want to get him ready to take the baton from me. In a, in a perfect world, yes. We know how that position goes. You never know if it's going to be a perfect world. Um, but, yeah, you want to – and, look, I wanted to – like, to be fair to Matt and to his team. I mean, this is – we we got guys that – you know, guys we – we had a great class in 18. Like, we've been building this from 18, 19, and 20. So, we got – we got players and we've extended them. And so they're right in, they're right entering that window um, where they think they can win and we think they can win. And so we got to give them the best chance to win. Um, and, you know, I wish, you know, in a perfect world, you'd draft a guy and he'd sit behind Matt and learn. I don't care if he sat for three years and learned, um, but it, you never know, you know, you never know when that opportunity is going to arise. You just got to, like the biggest thing to me is making sure you're studying the quarterback position each and every year, going A to Z on every prospect um, that enters the draft. Even if you have one, you need to go through the process. And if that guy, if that player presents itself with the opportunity to either move up or he ends up being where you're at, you need to be ready to pick him if you think he's the future. If we would have been guessing on Friday of the draft that you were going to take a Cincinnati player that night, we would have all thought it was Desmond Ritter. Instead, you took receiver Alec Pierce. What attracted you to him? Well, big athletic vertical threat, you know, that we needed to add to our offense. And um, it was good because we actually went down the workout, Desmond, and it was good. Like Desmond had a great day um, and is an unbelievable kid. And I think Desmond's going to be a good quarterback in this league. But the byproduct of that is we're able to see Alec Pierce work out. Um, and we got some questions answered. Wasn't anything about talent. We just didn't – we didn't quite know how he was going to be as a route runner. We just hadn't seen it enough yet. Um, so be able to watch him run and move and drop his weight, um, we think he's going to be a really good addition to our, to our team. Do you expect him to step into the starting lineup right away? Oh, he'll have to prove it. Like any player – like any – like, that's, Mike, that's always the thing I love about – the draft, like we draft and then everybody says, well, okay, they're, they're just going to automatically, no, they're rookies. They got to, you know, there's a natural maturation curve with all of them. Um, they they got to learn the pro game. They got to come in and earn it. Like the one thing you don't want to do is just stamp them. You know, they, you don't want to just stamp them. Like they got to come in and earn their role and their spot on the team, whether that's on special teams, you know, whether that's in a, as a three or four receiver, whatever the role is, and then earn their way up the ladder, which um, we think Alex has the potential. Alex has the potential to do, uh, but now now he's got to go to work. How do you make sense of what's going on at the receiver position currently in the NFL? You've got an abundance of rookies every year, round one, round two. Some great players in round two, not just round one. Some of the best receivers in the NFL were round two, but you've got veterans that are getting huge money. You've got veterans that are being traded from the teams that drafted them 
because those teams would rather take the draft picks and not pay the big money. But there's another team out there that's willing to give the draft picks and take. It's just so many different ways to get receivers. I haven't seen anything like this where, yes, you can get them in the draft, but there's still some great ones out there that people will fall all over themselves to get. What's your preference when it comes to having a receiver? I mean, you go second round on Alec Pierce. Would you rather go the route of get them on their first contract, let them grow instead of making that huge financial investment for a veteran? Yeah. Well, there's like, that's a two pronged thought in my, so like we're seeing receivers every year, you know, offensive, I mean, I think this tracks back to seven on seven. These kids are playing seven on seven since they're, you know, seventh, eighth grade and they're developing a lot of skill at a young age. Um, and a lot more complex probably when we were growing up, Mike, the game. I mean, what these kids know now compared to what I know knew growing up, I mean, it's incredible. And Madden, like you give credit to Madden in these games that have really helped that. I mean, they know coverages. I mean, they it's incredible what these young kids know now. And so you're seeing more receivers each and every year, at least this is my theory on it, just from their growing up you know, throwing the ball and catching the ball in seven on seven camps, just religiously from the eighth grade up eight high school. And then in the college where they're throwing it every down. So the influx of wideouts, that's not stopping. As a matter of fact, that's going to continue to grow. Um, look, you'd always want to grow your own. And when you got a special player, like when you got a real difference maker at the position, yeah, you're, you're good paying that guy. Like a guy that tilts the field your way on Sunday. Absolutely. Um, but it'd be nice if you could draft him and develop him and he knows your organization. Um, he's invested in being in your organization. And when you pay that guy, he, he feels, you know, he feels a real connection, not only with the team, but also with the city. And yeah. I, I think you saw that here with Reggie and Marvin, who are both still just revered in the city of Indianapolis. I'm not going to name names, but just the concept of, Drafting a guy, I always compare it to an unscratched lottery ticket. You draft a guy, you scratch the ticket, it's a winner. And then you trade it in for a new ticket before you get to enjoy it and benefit from it. Before you get to the second contract, you're swapping it for another ticket and you think that, that that's going to be another winner. That's a hell of a risk. Those winners are hard to find. No, and it's hard. And look, your team building, every team's going to do it a little bit different. You know, the cap... I mean, the cap and cash of, of what we have to spend is what it is. And then, look, I mean, we're still reeling from COVID a little bit. Like, we're still behind. And I think we forget that sometimes that, you know, really the cap right now should be at a, at a higher rate than it was just from the two-year reduction that we had to deal with. So it's, it's put a crunch on teams on who they can pay. And then now, now you choose, okay, where am I putting my money? Um, and if there's an influx in the draft where you think, okay, I can get a light part here, but I can't get this in the draft and you choose to move on from that player. then that's the, that's what the team has to do. One of the questions I've been asking most of the folks I've been talking to this week, schedule comes out, you get your eyes on the Colts schedule for the first time. What game do you check first? I, I, uh, I don't, I mean, to be quite honest with you, I don't, uh, we know who we're playing. I mean, we usually get screwed anyways, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are every Monday, like I can almost count on every Sunday and Monday night game. We're going to be on the road because we have not had one since I've been here on a Sunday and Monday night. I know we'll get a Thursday one. It, usually we'll get a Thursday night at home. 
Um, but no, I don't, I, I more look at, you know, how many weeks on the road in a row, when's the buy. I know who we're playing. So it's, now it's just a matter of when. Um, and, you know, the NFL, you never know. Like I always laugh when people go, well, the, they, they've got an easy schedule. Man, there is no easy schedule in this league. They're all good. And you never know when that team that was four and, you know, four and 13 the year before all of a sudden becomes, you know, a 13 and four team this year. So we just play them as we see, as it comes off. Um, and we just look at if, if there's anything we need to do adjust, adjust wise in terms of, you know, how many road games in a row, when's the buy. Um, those are the trends that we more look at. One of the things Sims and I talk about all the time, and it, it's different for different teams, but sometimes it can be very beneficial to have some quote unquote easy games and who knows how easy they are until you go play them. But if you've got some soft spots perceived on your schedule, you can get a couple of wins under your belt. Sometimes if there's a new coach, there's a new quarterback, there's a new something, you build some confidence and it kind of goes from there as opposed to starting off 0-2, 0-3, 0-4, and then you're digging out of a hole all year long. Well, look, and look, a lot of the schedule, that's right. I mean, like who are the quarterbacks you're playing? Like that's a big, that's a big part of it. Um I mean, I mean, I want to say last year I had my schedule on me, but I know we went through a stretch there. I was like, holy cow. I mean, you know, we had a we had a load of them. Um, so who the quarterbacks in a row? You know, you're getting top flight, top five quarterbacks, you know, five weeks in a row. Boy, you better buckle up um, for that five five week stretch. Well, you've got the 2016 NFL MVP now, and he has shown no signs of slowing down. And he's on a much better team than he's had around him in recent years. So. I think it's going to be exciting to see what the Colts do this year. And maybe, maybe this is the year that the new quarterback every year ends. Maybe you get this one for a few years. We get two years. Two, <laughs> we get two to four years. That'd be awesome. I mean, you have no idea. Like every offseason, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Here we go again. Here we go. <laughs> you guys are about to have that jersey like they used to have in Cleveland, where it just has all the names of the quarterbacks down the I back. I know. I know. You're getting there. Halfway down. So, well, except, it's been, except we didn't have top five picks during those times. I'm proud of that. And it's been great to see how you've got a competitive team every year. I tell people all the time, hey, you know, you guys gave the Bills a run for their money at home in the playoffs in 2020. That wasn't that long ago. And there's still a lot of pieces on that team. So I think you guys can do some great things this year. It'll be fun to watch. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Go fishing. I'm going I'm yeah, going to go fishing good. soon. I'll, let, I'll send you a picture of yeah. uh, whatever I catch. Uh, and then I'll send you a picture of the guy who comes over to take it off the hook. <laughs> I appreciate you, Mike. Thanks. For All right, me. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Our series of general manager interviews here continues on a special edition of PFTPM joining us now, the first year GM of the New York football giants. He is Joe Shane. And you already, you already have mastered Coughlin time. I know it's been a long time since coach Coughlin has been there, but you're ready to go. You're ready to go seven minutes before the appointed time. I applaud <laughs> you for your punctuality. Mike, I know you're a busy man. I'm just trying to be respective of your time. And I thought if I showed up early, maybe this would help you in the long run. Or you thought if I show up early, it'll get done sooner, right? The yeah, yeah, I yeah, exactly. Yeah, thing. okay. It's like the root canal. We start the root canal early. The sooner the root canal's over, let's exactly. get the root canal started. All right. Exactly. Um, you got a draft under your belt. First time you're the guy in charge running the show. What's the biggest lesson you learned about yourself, about the game, about anything going through that process as the guy sitting in the GM chair? Yeah, really the biggest uh, adjustment for me was trying to balance 
you know, the, the new scouting staff and the new coaching staff. And, you know, typically when you go through the draft, you know, you know that your roster, like the back of your hand and you've, you've, you've had experiences, practice games with these players. So along with your staff and it's, you know, getting to know Wink Martindale and his staff and, you know, I offense was a little bit easier for me. I have to admit, cause I had, I'd worked with Dayball before, which was easy, but a whole group of, of scouts as well. And trying to balance, you know, who, who are the really good scouts at getting background and who are the really good evaluators and trying to set the board with, you know, people you've never worked with. So, um, you know, coming from Buffalo where we had a lot of continuity on the staff and we had been together for a while, that was probably the biggest adjustment, just going through the process, getting to know the staff and, you know, what exactly we were looking for from a schematic standpoint from the coaching part. We got a little news from the Giants before the draft began. It was announced or leaked. I can't remember quite exactly how it got out, but the idea that the Daniel Jones fifth-year option would not be picked up. Now, we had talked about that at the scouting combine. You had pointed out you'd have some time with them in the building. You wanted to wait to make a decision until you had to. End of the day, why was the decision made not to exercise that prerogative at one more year, $22 million in change guaranteed, why not pick up that option? What was your, your reasoning? Yeah, the, the, the 22 million, I mean, that's a, that's a large number, but again, we're, we're excited about working with Daniel. We're, we're, we're happy where he is. This isn't an indictment on who Daniel is as, as a person or anything like that. We're, we're really happy with what Daniel's done for us um, throughout the process when we had him over the three months, getting to know him and being in the building for four weeks now and, and the offseason program. And we like everything he's doing. We're excited to work with him. We just thought that that was the best decision right now for, for where we are moving forward. Um, again, we're excited to work with him. We, you know, we've upgraded the offensive line. We like some of the weapons that we have around him. And again, we want to see uh, Daniel be able to put his best foot forward. And I think we've done that this offseason. But um, that decision was just what was best for us right now. It's a balancing act. Right. You've got the 22 million fully guaranteed if it's mm -hmm. exercised. So you don't do that. The other side of it is he goes out and he balls out this year. Then you got yeah, that'd problem. be great. I guess you yeah. call that the good problem to have. Good problem. Yeah, it's a good have. problem to have. And you got the franchise, you know, you also got the franchise tag if you needed a year from now that, that you know, that's a, a gamble. You know, say it's a $8 million gamble or, you know, you're talking to his representatives and you're trying to get an extension. You know, he's, uh, Patrick Collins represents him and Jim Denton, two agents, you know, just worked with recently over there in Buffalo with Patrick Collins actually uh, represents Josh Allen as well, but Jim Denton have a good relationship with him. And, you know, hopefully we've, we've set Daniel up for success with, you know, again, you know, improving the offensive line, the weapons that are here, um, you know, Saquon another year off, off the knee and he'll be able to put his best foot forward. And that's a, that's a good problem to have if we got to figure out, you know, how we're going to, how we're going to pay him, how we're going to structure a contract, but it's a franchise tag. Um, that'll be a good problem to have is part of the decision. Let's see how he does with that carrot, with that incentive. He knows nothing is guaranteed to him beyond this year. Let's see how he chases that goal. He's, I don't think Daniel needs motivation. I think he's a naturally motivated kid. He's, he's, he's a self-starter. He's in here all the time. I, I, I don't think Daniel needed any incentive to go out and, um, perform at a high level. I think he truly wants to be great. Uh, he approaches the game like that. And um, although it may be an incentive, I, I don't think he's a kid that, that, that needs an, an incentive or a carrot out there to go to go both perform well. How influenced were you? This is the last question on this. How I have famous last words. How influenced were you by some of the other examples we've seen? Bears didn't pick it up on Mitchell Trubisky and we're glad they didn't. Browns pick it up on Baker Mayfield. Regret. Panthers pick it up on Sam Darnold regret. Do you factor those other experiences into your decision-making process? 
No, I mean, I, you look at that when, when those teams make those decisions and, you know, that's, it's the quarterback position and that's a large number. So yeah, you pay attention across the league, but you know, this, we looked at what was best for the New York giants and the situation where again, and listen, we've known Daniel for three months, look forward to working with him. And, you know, we just thought this was the, the, the best option for us moving forward. Now it's the last one. See, anytime I say last one, I know there's always going to be, I always know there's going to be another. I don't know why I say it. Pre-2020, if picking up that option is guaranteed for injury only, do you pick it up? I, I think we were, again, I think the decision we made, we, you know, we're, we're comfortable with it, whether there was, you know, option, pre-option or not. I, I think we're comfortable with the decision we made. I, you know, that's a hypothetical. So I, hadn't, I, I think we would still make the same decision. You play the Packers in London. We found that out earlier today. How do you feel about, number one, taking the operation to London, and number two, getting the Packers there instead of at Lambeau Field? Yeah, I mean, it's – whenever you go to Lambeau, it's kind of a catch-20. I, I don't like playing there because it's hard to win there. It's, it's hard to play there, but uh, that's one of my favorite stadiums in the league, the, the history of that stadium and driving through a small community. You know, it's a little bit like Buffalo when you're going up to the stadium. You know, you're driving through – you know, blue collar town, um, you know, just, just all the history there. I love it. So uh, going to London, on the other hand, I, I like it. I'm excited about it. You know, it's our first year. I've been there a couple of times when I was with the dolphins um, you know, hopefully the giants fans show up in droves over there and uh, you know, it'd be a fun, it'd be a good experience for, you know, first year head coach, you know, first year GM, our first um, time going through it with the, the, the players that we have. So, you know, hopefully it'll form some team bonding as well as we go over there and it'd be a great experience. I've asked your former colleague, Brandon Bean, this question, Brett Veach, George Payton, just a little bit ago. When that schedule comes out May 12, and you, you get it, whether you get it in advance or right when everyone else sees it or whenever you get it, what's the first thing you're going to look for? That's a good question. Um, really, for me, the first thing that I'll look for is our, our division games. You know, when those, when those are, I know we'll probably have some late in the season, but, you know, I think that's where it starts competing for the division. If you, if you're able to compete for the division, win the division, I think the rest takes care of itself. So I always go right to the division and see how that lines up when we play those teams and, and what that'll look like. Well, one of the teams in the division, the Dallas Cowboys, they had an interesting development during the draft where Jerry Jones held up his draft board long enough for somebody to take a picture of it. And then they tried to discern what was on there. And as it turns out, their top two players, were your first two picks. They had Kayvon Thibodeau one and Evan Neal two. And I was saying that earlier today, boy, they had to, they had to be cussing up a storm when they saw that the Giants got both of their top two guys on their draft board. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I, hope, I hope the Cowboys were right in the way they had guys ranked. Yeah, that'd be a good story to have. But it's funny, uh, Will McClay is a good friend of mine. I've known him a long time. And we were trying to move up uh, later on in the draft. And, uh, you know, might have been – fourth or fifth round. And I said, Will, I said, I'm down to the last name on your list that Jerry showed us. I said, I don't know what's on the back. Can you, can you let me know what's on the back of that sheet? And uh, he got a good laugh out of it, but uh, yeah, Will McClay is a good buddy of mine and it'll be fun competing against him a couple of times a year. But I, I did see that report today that those, those two guys were top on their list. That was pretty funny. Kayvon Thibodeau was a surprise for a lot of people because he was the, the puzzle going into the draft. He was the guy at one point was the favorite to be the number one overall pick. We see him number one on the Cowboys draft board. There was talk he's going to fall out of the top 10. What, what caused you to, to be attracted by the positives, set aside the negatives, and make him the guy when you had a chance to make your pick at five? 
Yeah, there weren't there weren't many negatives going through the process. Again, just everybody's different, you know, in terms of personality and and how you are in certain settings. So he he's a guy we spent a lot of time with, um, you know, from the combine to you know go, taking him out to dinner at his pro day to bringing him in, uh, zooms with him, you know, Facetime. So we spent a lot of time with him. You know, he's always had good grades in school. He's never been in trouble. He's a hard worker. He he had an ankle injury this year. Um, a lot of people that are going to be high picks easily could have hung it up and, and called it a season. And, you know, but this kid fought, fought back, he practiced through it, um, eventually came back and played late in the season. So, yeah, you know, for, for whatever, you know, the draft season and the, the misinformation that gets out there, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, we did a lot of research. We felt comfortable with the kid and, you know, we obviously we were comfortable with the player, you know, we think he's going to be a good fit for us. I always think when I hear the negatives get pushed by people in the media, that there's somebody on the other side of the top 10 that hopes like hell he falls out of the top 10 so they can get him that that's yeah. usually who's behind it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. We had heard again, the way it worked out, there were, there were some teams that were behind us that were targeting, you know, that six range, you know, Carolina had a one and a four, you know, would they maybe move back if a team, you know, trades up into six. So um, we had definitely heard teams behind us were interested in him. And, you know, depending on who went one or two, it was an interesting draft that you didn't know necessarily who was going to go one or two there, you know, there weren't any quarterbacks or necessarily consensus one, two, or three, you know, if, if Hutchinson would have went one, you know, what would Detroit have done? You know, would, would Thibodeau have went there or would they have went Walker? And then you're going through all these scenarios. So, you know, if Thibodeau did fall, you know, now what's it look like behind us now that a team can go to six instead of all the way up to two or three, you know, potentially drafting. Chris Sims and I interviewed Thibodeau Super Bowl week, not in person via Zoom like this, but I got the impression he's very gregarious, personable, smart, funny. Does that factor in for you knowing the market you're in, the exposure the players will have? They got to be able to hold their own dealing with the media. Does that become a factor for you, especially for a high profile pick? Yeah. And I think, it, I think it does for every, every team. You know, I was, um, you know, when I was down in Miami uh, with the dolphins, that was always something. Can he handle South beach? Will this kid be able to survive in Miami? How will he be in, you know, that scene? Okay. And then you go to Buffalo. Um, some people are, Hey, that's, that's, that's the ideal place for him because there's not as much going on or, or a player. So whichever team you're in, whatever city you're in, you, you always take in, the environment, the outside surroundings, you got to think, of, you know, will this player be able to succeed? Um, you know, will football still be important to him? And again, Kayvon's from LA. There's plenty of stuff going on in LA. Um, he grew up in, in that environment, you know, big city. And, you know, I think he'll just be fine in New York. And, you know, we were comfortable with that fit. He told us he's a Rams fan, but he didn't want to play for the Rams because he didn't want to pay California state income tax. So he's got to be happy. <laughs> still got to pay a little chunk in New Jersey, yeah, 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 yeah. but not like yeah. he'd have to pay in California. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, either of those places will be in for a little bit of a surprise. You mentioned Carolina at six. You guys had five and seven. End of the day, why did you go D-line five instead of O-line five? Because you're taking a risk, obviously, that you're going to not get both of the guys you wanted. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And it, it goes back to a little bit what we just said when we were talking about, you know, Kayvon at five. There was some concern. There were you know, rumors of some teams behind us that may be trying to get up into that sixth slot. Um, and we knew, you know, we went through, you know, a bunch of different scenarios. If both tackles were there and the pass rusher, um, we were going to go with the pass rusher knowing we would still get a really good player um, at seven. And, you know, the way it went, it worked out. You know, we'd been through that scenario a hundred times and we would be comfortable 
um, with either tackle, depending on how it played out. I've heard Evan Neal was your top guy. Now, look, nothing against Iki Aquano. You got to have one guy above the other. And I don't expect you to say, no, he wasn't our top guy. But I get the feeling you're happy with the way it played out. Yeah, we're, we're, we're static the way it played out. And, you know, again, we're happy to have Evan Neal. Again, a guy that started 40 games at Alabama, you know, against some of the best competition in one of the best conferences. You know, he played left tackle, guard, and right tackle. So the experience, the durability, he's 21 years old. He's a really good player and a great kid. So we're static the way it turned out with both of those guys. Something I've been asking everyone this week, what do you make of the dynamic at the receiver position? I've seen nothing like it where – there's a supply of great guys every year, round one. Also some guys who hit in round two and beyond. Debo Samuel was a second round pick, DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, for example. And then the guys at the top who show they can do it, getting huge money more than ever before. And if they can't get it from their current teams, they're finding a way to a place that will happily give up significant draft assets and pay the guy what he wants. Both of those dynamics playing out at the same time and teams having to decide, where do I fall in this camp? Do I draft a guy? Do I trade a guy and try to backfill? Why do you think it's gotten to this point at the receiver position where there's these very different approaches to going out and acquiring a guy who plays a position that's becoming more and more important to the offense? Yeah, and I think, you know, Coach Dayball talks about it all the time. You go watch youth football. It's seven on seven. Uh, my son's 12 years old, and – they had, he's a quarterback, they had a wristbands and no huddle offense with signals at 12 years old in youth football, no huddle, and they're throwing the ball around. So that's where the game's going. So, you know, again, it's, it's a spread game. When, when we played Tampa Bay this year, we didn't run the ball one time the entire first half. So it's, it's, it's evolving into, you know, a lot of teams to a passing league, and there's definitely a premium on receivers. And then to your point, you see what these guys are getting paid now. So, you know, if you can get one early in the draft, um, you know, that's important because it's cost controlled for four or five years, but there's also a miss rate on receivers. Um, you know, there's 25, 27 drafted every year. And why do some have success and some fizzle out? I mean, you look at the miss rate of receivers. Um, I mean, just look back at the last three or four drafts and the, the first and second rounders there, there is a miss rate there. And, um, you know, I think people take that into account. So you got a proven commodity, you know, exactly what you're getting in some of those veteran players, you know, that, you, you know, Debo or, Hill was just traded, you know, some of those guys that are proven commodities. So um, trying to balance that, but, you know, again, make sure that you get it right. Have you identified any trends as to what causes the misses among the receivers? I, I just get the impression it's a, it's just a, a stew of factors and you roll the dice and you see what happens, but is there any common thread, you know, size of school, anything, anything that you've seen that makes you think that this is more likely to contribute to a guy busting who goes in round one. Yeah, I think a lot of it is the way they're, they're wired. You know, I was around, I was fortunate enough to be around Steve Smith when I was in Carolina, one of the most competitive players I've ever been around and he's undersized, but every day at practice, he brought it and he'd let you know. Um, Jarvis Landry, when I was in Miami, same deal. Um, tremendous practice player, brought it every day. Um, very competitive. So I think to me, that's a trade I always look for in receivers because that's going to kind of put you over the edge if you're super talented and you don't have that competitiveness or the drive to separate yourself from, you know, the 26 other guys that are drafted, I think that's sometimes where you miss. But I think those guys that have the talent and they're wired to be competitive and driven to succeed and be the best at their craft, that's typically where you're going to have success. When I had this conversation with Brandon Bean, he went on and on about the importance of having a number one receiver 
you guys, when you were there, traded for Stephon Diggs. And basically, I, I don't know what I would do without him was essentially what Brandon said. You, your team, before you got there, drafted Kadarius Toney in the first round last year. And I don't, there were some weird reports, and I don't know what was really going on. Was he being shopped? Was he available? I don't know. But where do things stand now in the relationship with him? And do you envision that he can become that number one receiver that the offense is going to need to get to where it wants to be? Yeah, it, Kadarius is a super talented kid. Again, when, when I was interviewing for the job, he was one of the young players. I'm like, I'm really excited to work with this kid. And, you know, he's been here for three weeks now. And, you know, he's really bought into what we're doing. He's excited to be here. He's had great energy. And he's been really pleasant to work with here. So, yes, if, if it, you know, he missed some games last year because of injury. And, again, part of it, you know, dependability and being on the field is important for all these guys. So, if he's on the field and he's healthy and when he's right, he definitely has the ability to be a, you know, a, a dynamic playmaker in our offense. Well, we'll see how it all plays out for your first season with the Giants. Week one will be here. Before we know it, maybe we'll get a division rival right out of the gates. Maybe we get the Cowboys. Maybe you can show <laughs> Kayvon Thibodeau and Evan Neal in Giants uniform to Jerry Jones. You showed, Jerry, you showed us the board. We'll show you the reality. Here they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we like their draft, too. They did a good job, too. I, I like those guys, uh, Will McClay and them. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. That would, be, that would be a fun one. That'd be a fun one. All right, Joe. Well, hey, we appreciate it. Congratulations again on getting the job. And thanks for some of your time. We look forward to talking to you down the road. All right. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it man who has gotten through his second draft as the GM of the Denver Broncos joining us now. He's George Payton. George, great to talk to you again. How's everything? Good to be here, Mike. Doing good. What, what did you do last Thursday night since you didn't have any picks to make? Not a lot. You know, we, we did watch a little Russell Wilson. We, we had some uh, friendly wagers. Uh, and just, you know, we're, we're football junkies, so it's fun to watch the first round of any draft, really, but especially the NFL draft. Friendly wagers along what lines? Well, I can't get into it too much. Where guys go, right? Is this guy going to go in the first round? And, you know, and the coaches got involved. So it, it was fun. You know, we had a good time with the guys, you know, anticipating where guys go. Basically, those were the wagers that we had, the friendly wagers. How much different is your preparation when you're going into a draft where you don't have a first round pick? It, the preparation's the same. I mean, we were just, you know, instead of uh, really anticipating and studying the clusters at maybe the ninth pick, you know, we do so more in the second round and in the late first, knowing that, you know, we always have an option to trade up. So the process doesn't change. It's just the type of players you're looking at. The uh, announcement was made earlier today that the Broncos are going to London to take on the Jacksonville Jaguars. What are your thoughts about packing everything up and heading that far away from Denver to play a game? You know, we're excited. Our whole organization is excited. I'm excited. I've been over there twice. It's, it's a really, they do a great job. The fans are incredible. Um, it's just another way to spread our brand, you know, spread, you know, the uh, football internationally. And so, you know, I think we're all excited. It's, it's a good time. I've been asking this question to most of the folks I've been talking to this week. We already know one of your games now on the schedule at at Jacksonville, but when it comes out on the 12th, when you get the full thing, whenever you see it, you probably see it in advance. What's the first thing you look to? You look to week one, you know, really and how many night games, but really you're, you're focused on that first game and, and then you kind of dig into it, how many night games, you know, and, and uh, compare it to, um, you know, your road games and, and what time of year and, you know, how many cold weather games. So you, you really dig into it, but really I look at the first game uh, when I, you know, when I see the schedule. There's been some scuttlebutt that maybe you'll be 
the team that gets to go to LA to take on the Rams opening night of the season, any preference or not to do that? You got to go there anyway, at some point, I guess you can make the argument you may as well do it right out of the gates. Yeah. I mean, really no preference. I love LA. I'm from there. It would be an honor to play there week one, but uh, you know, really no preference with myself or our team, you know, the uh, concept that is come up speaking of the Rams, and we're seeing it play out with receivers a lot this offseason. The F them picks, trademark phrase from Les Snead. I mean, you guys fell into that mindset this year with Russell Wilson. Is, is that just a one-off or is it a sign of things to come that you're going to be willingly sacrificing draft picks if you can go out and get a veteran player that comes in and addresses a need? I just think it's, uh, if it's something unique, and uh, you have the ability to get a really good player. You're always going to look into it. We always have, even in Minnesota. Uh, we went and traded for Jared Allen way back then, you know, and, and uh, that was before it was really in vogue. But I think if it's something unique, you have to explore it. You have to know where your team is at. You know, are they ready for a certain player? Do you have a chance to win if you get this player and you give up those picks? A lot goes into it. I know we do love draft picks. You know, we, we don't have a shirt to say it, but we do like, we had nine this year. We had 10 last year. Um, but uh, obviously, when you give up the, you know, the, the first and second both years, I can could, I could understand the question. You really were at Minnesota a long time if you were there for the Jared Allen trade in 2008, right? Was that 08? Yeah. I think it was 08, yep. God, I remember Rick explaining to me why the move was made. It's, yeah. it's like Jared Allen is your first-round pick, and you're adding a third-round pick as insurance that your first-round pick is going to hit because you know that Jared Allen's going to hit. He hit. It worked. You know, it doesn't always work. That worked. And, and uh, you know, hopefully this works. Well, what have you seen so far from Russell Wilson that that convinces you that it's going to work? Yeah, I mean, just the leadership from a day to day, you know, his obsession with uh, winning and, and the process of winning. And you feel it and, and our organization feels it, our players feel it. And then you watch him on the field. And obviously he's uh, extremely talented. You know, we think he's one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL. So. Um, you feel it every day with this, with Russ and, um, he really loves, uh, he loves the process of winning. So it's fun. It carries throughout the building and it carries on the field. So it's been fun. When you introduced Russell Wilson, you made that comment. He's a winner. And that is a trigger phrase for certain folks who are in football and who follow football. They will stomp their feet and say, wins aren't a quarterback stat wins are irrelevant to quarterback play. I have my own opinions on that matter, and I'm curious to hear you elaborate on, on how that intangible quality, that history of winning, affects and influences a guy's performance and also the performance of everyone around him. I just think you look at the, the teams that have won, and what's the, the common trait is typically it's a quarterback. And then you look at Russ's record, you know, over the first 10 years, he's won more games than any quarterback, I believe, in history. And so that, that's a pretty good uh, record of winning. And, uh, you know, you do your homework on, on, on Russ. We did that, you know, we did the trade. And, and uh, you know, he's a winner. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You look at his record, he wins games. Now, they had a lot of good players around him. I get it. And we're going to need a lot of good players around him. And, uh, and hopefully we have enough around him where we can take that next step. But the way I interpret it, I think that, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the idea is he elevates his presence, his attitude, the way he carries himself, the way 
has expectations for himself and necessarily everyone around him that, that there's just something different. And, and I've picked that up from the quotes I've seen from members of the organization. There's just something different when Russell Wilson walks through the door. Yeah, there's something different. And uh, I experienced that for one year or two years, actually, when we had we got far in, in Minnesota. And I remember that first practice and it really, I mean, you knew it. It elevated everyone and it did just elevate the players. You know, it elevated the people in the building, the work ethic, the accountability. And uh, we feel that here with Russ. Why do you think only one quarterback was drafted this year before you guys were on the clock? It's at, uh, what was it? Where were you? 64 at the bottom around two? Was that your first? 64. Yeah. 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 Why do you think only one quarterback gets called before you? You Because I'm sure you would have loved to have five of them picked by then since you're not looking for a quarterback get burn off all the, the the picks you can at the position we're not interested in why do you think it was only one hard to say I mean I think probably uh you know a lot of a lot of teams addressed it um I can't speak for the teams that didn't take one we you know we thought there were some talented quarterbacks um there's so much that goes into the evaluation of quarterback nowadays I think there's more technology I think teams are more efficient in evaluating uh quarterbacks uh, I can't speak for those teams. We really didn't get in. Obviously, we evaluated all those quarterbacks, not knowing if we would get Russ. Um, but that, that's a tough one to, to answer. I have a kind of a, 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 I don't want to call it a theory. I don't know that it's baked yet enough to be a theory. But I almost feel like teams are less inclined to overdraft at quarterbacks now because it used to be there's only one place you're going to get a good quarterback. Now, you just never know what any offseason is going to bring. You, you could have Russell Wilson available. You could have Matt Ryan fall out of the sky and land on your depth chart. Do you think league-wide there's just kind of a confidence that, yeah, we need a quarterback, but you know what? Next offseason, chances are something's going to happen and somebody's going to be available, whereas in past years it just didn't happen that way. You know, I think maybe that there's a little bit of that, but if a team really likes a quarterback, they're going to take him, you know, that year. You never know what's going to be, you know, in the horizon. You don't know if the quarterback, let's say there is a veteran quarterback. You don't know if he's going to want to come to your organization. Uh, I just think you keep building your team the best you can until that quarterback, you know, is, is it within reach, whether the draft, free agency, trade. There's so many different ways to get a quarterback now. Obviously, look how, you know, we traded, we had two trades back-to-back years to get quarterbacks. I just, you keep swinging until you get one because if you don't get one it's really hard to win you're not specifically in this situation yet but how closely are you paying attention to the dynamic of veteran receivers eligible for second or third contracts money going haywire some teams saying we're out take them give us the picks give us the cap relief we're not going to pay them you pay them and then you can backfill with a first round receiver as we saw the Titans do. How much are you watching that? I know you're not in it yet, but it's just a weird trend where there's so many great receivers every year in the draft, but still guys are getting paid more than ever before the guys who are proven they can do it. I think we have a, we have a pulse in every position and, and receivers, you know, we obviously we just signed two receivers. We really like uh, Tim Patrick and Cortland Sutton. You know, I was in Minnesota. We traded a great receiver to Buffalo. And so I think every situation is different. Receivers, I think it's, it's become more of a premium position. You know, it's, the, the league is just more and more passing. And, and uh, everyone, you know, you need that number one receiver to create mismatches. So, I mean, actually, we have a pulse of that, obviously. And, and uh, you know, I'm just glad we have our receivers uh, under contract. Your new coach, Nathaniel Hackett, I saw he lined up at tailback at one of the minicamp practices. What position are you going to line up at? 
you know, I'm probably just going to watch. I don't know how much longer Nathaniel's, you know, he may pull a hammy, you know, he's, he's working, he works out a lot. So, um, you know, I would probably be a defensive back and uh, get beat pretty kind of like college. I got beat a lot. I have been paying as much attention as I can to the ownership situation teams for sale. Obviously it's no secret. How closely do you track that? You know, I have a pulse, you know, I've been so entrenched with the draft and Joe Ellis has done a great job of communicating with me, you know, but I don't really know all the specifics. Um, you know, we're really excited to get uh, an owner here. We'll get new leadership here and, and uh, we embrace it. You know, I think, uh, I think this organization, uh, you know, needs a, needs a, a, lead, a new leader and a new owner. Well, next up, the schedule. We'll see where the Broncos start the season. Maybe it will be on NBC Thursday night against the Rams as they hang a banner. Banners hanging behind you. You're chasing another one. All the best in your pursuit, George. Thanks as always for some of your time. Look forward to talking to you again. All right, Mike. Great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks, you George. Go.